Welp, it's that time of year again. Things wind down. The sprint toward compliance with Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa begins. I know some of you are much more responsible than I am. Ruby's FO at Uber comes to mind. But, for example, I had my family's Christmas party this weekend. We do a white elephant thing, and everyone has to buy a $25 gift. Obviously, I swerved into my parents' driveway the night before at 2 a.m. after a long drive up the East Coast from D.C. to Maine. Got up the next morning, ran to the liquor store for a bottle of whiskey and two Patriots-themed scratch cards. Call it a day. I mentioned Ruby because she just tweeted she got her workout in by wrapping like 40 gifts perfectly with little hints on what the gifts are on the tags. It's just one reason I respect her so much and also we're different. I'll mention during this episode so you should know. I'm going on my first cruise next week. I've learned recently it's a wildly divisive topic. Everyone I tell has an equally passionate reaction. Either they're terrified of cruises and they know they'd hate it or... They've been on a cruise and will advocate for them like they're canvassing for Obama. There's no middle, no lukewarm. Anyway, me and the bestie, Coben, are heading from Baltimore to the Bahamas and back. I'm planning on having a blast, really leaning into cruise life. Wish me luck. In this week's episode, we're going back to where it all began. Well, we're going back to where this podcast began. But first, some news. Chris, amazing sound engineer, Could we put some upbeat holiday music behind this news dispatch, just to be festive? The New York Times reports that Epic Games, the company behind the very popular video game Fortnite, has settled with the FTC over charges it illegally collected children's personal information and used dark patterns to trick users into making unintentional purchases. The Times' Natasha Singer, who does really great privacy reporting work, She said that in a, quote, historic deal that puts the entire video game industry on notice, Epic agreed to pay a record $520 million in fines and refunds to settle the FTC's accusation. The FTC acted at a moment of heightened public concern over the mental health, safety, and privacy risks that some popular social media networks and multiplayer video games may pose to children and teenagers, end quote. The Times continues, quote, The crackdown is also the latest indication that the agency is following through on pledges by Lena Khan, its chair, to take a more assertive stance toward regulating the tech industry. Earlier this month, the agency made an aggressive move to stop consolidation among video game makers when it filed a lawsuit to try to block Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard, the company behind the popular Call of Duty franchise. It continues, protecting the public and especially children from online privacy invasions and dark patterns is a top priority for the commission, Ms. Khan said in a statement on Monday about the Fortnite case. These enforcement actions make clear to businesses that the FTC is cracking down on these unlawful practices, end quote. This is a trend where continuing to see regulation over the children's space heat up, as well as laws on children's privacy heat up. Note. California's age-appropriate design code, which we'll also talk about during this episode. Next, CPRA news, because also, who even cares about anything except for the CPRA right now with this Gen 1 deadline? Jen Bryan at the IEPP, and shout out to Jen, my former colleague, reports on the latest with those wildly anticipated CPR regs. Bad news, they've been pushed out again. While the CPRA takes effect in just under two weeks, the California Privacy Protection Agency is still working to promulgate final rules, Jen Bryant wrote. 
During December 16th board meeting, CPPA Executive Director Ashkan Sultani said the final rules will likely be released in late January. Under that timeline, Bryant writes, with a 30-day review by the California Office of Administrative Law, the regulations would take effect around April. In February, as you'll remember, Sultani announced the agency would miss its, Jan- its July 1 deadline for finalizing the rules. Finally, the IAB has issued a statement urging Congress to drop the provisions in an omnibus bill that would update COPPA. Uh, Interactive uh, Advertising Bureau Executive Vice President for Public Policy, Lartice Tiffith, said the trade association supports children's privacy, but that including significant changes to COPPA in a hurried omnibus spending bill risks unintended consequences for Internet users of all ages. Tiffith said that uh, what we do know is that a broad definition of targeting advertising could capture contextual advertising as well. A change to the actual knowledge standard means that to protect themselves from regulatory problems, many companies would erect barriers to prevent children from accessing any content at all. He also said age gating and paywalls would increase under the bill. He said, quote, policymakers need to understand that digital advertising subsidizes safe, free content helping kids to learn, play, and communicate. Those least able to afford the extra cost would pay more for online products and services if they could afford them at all. End quote. Okay, finally, on to this week's episode. When I started this new podcast, after taking a couple years off after I left the IPP, I invited my besties Gabe Maldoff, an attorney at Goodwin Proctor, and Coben's wife, Keegan, the IAPP's DC managing director, to come chat with me. I did that mostly because the year's almost over, my brain and my body are dead, dead, so dead, and I just wanted to have an easy chat. But also, doing so was a bit of a nod to the start of this whole thing. When I launched the Privacy Beat podcast, I asked both of the boys to record an intro episode with me as a way of introducing myself to new listeners by being as natural as I could be, given that I was among friends. Friends who really know their stuff on privacy, by the way. So in this episode, we talk a little bit about the realities on the ground as of December 2023 and look back at 2022's milestones and needle movers. As always, thanks so much for your support and listens and shares. I'm working with word on the street endorsements, and every time you comment or share the podcast, it really helps me grow this thing. And we're still on the up and up. Finally, holidays can be the actual worst for some of us. For me, it's the hardest time of the year for many reasons, including the loss of my dad 12 years ago now in December. So if it's not the magical wonderland that some of us feel like we have to project it is to keep up with the Joneses, hey, I'm with you. But we can at least celebrate having some time off of the clock and off of Slack and email. I'm sending you love however you celebrate. Here's Coben, Gabe, and myself. Love you. Talk soon. I haven't seen you guys in a while. I know. I was thinking that too. Halloween. Um, Did we go for that really long walk after Halloween or before? The day of, remember? Because oh, that's why we were late. We got yes. home like an hour before we were supposed to like be at Coben's and we were yes. like, oh, we Whoops. should shower. <laughs> uh, that was fun. I was thinking we should do, I want to do that again soon. But you're not, I'm not going to see you. I leave on Friday for oh, Maine no. and then I, um, and then I fly back to DC on Christmas Day <laughs> because Coben and I are going on a cruise on the 26th. Oh, I remember you saying. Yeah. So, and then we're gone until January 2nd. So this might be the last time I see you before 2023. So I'm glad we're doing this. 
cruises are literally my nightmare, but I'm I'm glad you guys are doing No, that, you told me that on my walk. And I was like, well, I'm going, so let's just <laughs> review the positives, okay? I told him, and he was like, never, nope, oh my God, I'd rather die. I remember we were like walking through Georgetown, and I was like, fuck. <laughs> it's very divisive. Like, like, to you guys, it will be fun. I think so. I think even if it's a bad time, we're going to be observing other people and just enjoying ourselves. So I think that, like, I'm very excited to, I wouldn't want to go on my first one with someone else who's never done one before, but I feel like going with Pogo, like since he's like a pro bruiser and knows like how to have fun and what the ins and outs are. But I've also been like marketed to uh, a lot. I think it's like, I think it's like me being tracked because I'm my like Apple news feed keeps on sending me these stories Oh yeah, of Once all you, these people yes. who are like, I never went on a cruise, but then I leaned into it and went on one. Like, here's what happened. Or like, literally I got one the other day that was like, here's how to go. Here's how to enjoy a cruise on new year's or whatever. And I was like, damn, like this algorithm's good. Yeah. They're pretty good. These and of course I clicked on all of them. I was like, hmm. right. <laughs> um, Instagram anyhow. keeps hitting me these days with like, I don't know why it thinks I want them but there are these like home setups where you can grow your own edible mushrooms. <laughs> and I absolutely want every single one of them. Like I'm always like, you know, you buy mushrooms and they go bad and you're, but then you want mushrooms and you don't have them. I, I want this home edible mushroom thing. Wait, have you done mushrooms before? <laughs> these, are mushroom. these are for regular mushrooms. These are for culinary mushrooms. Oh! <laughs> well, I, I think I don't know that they part of the marketing ploy is that you could grow any kind of mushroom, but I just want culinary mushrooms. Yeah, that's boring. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. But I respect it. <laughs> um, timely enough. I mean, I guess we could have done this at any time and I'd say the same thing, but it feels like this week especially was just like shit you know for the privacy profession uh especially with the new privacy shield announcement which we'll talk about in a second but in general and i think this is maybe um an interesting question to go to gabe to first because he was supposed to come over and record this in person i even tried to bribe him with wine and snacks um but he could not get away like <laughs> We are drinking wine. Um, Gabe is not, but he couldn't get away. <laughs> yeah, the clink was maybe was <laughs> that hurts. But um, but I um, I wanted to just ask, how's it going uh, in privacy world for the privacy a professional or attorney? What's uh, what's this week been like for you, Gabriel? Well, I feel like your your tone of voice implies some concern. And so I just want to reassure you that my blank wall behind me is just because I haven't put anything up yet and I'm not like in prison somewhere. Um, <laughs> this week, like every week in, in privacy land, has been wonderful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's going on? We've got, um, you know, some state laws that come in next year. And so we're kind of in the uh, weird point now where companies are, on the one hand, scrambling to um, get their ducks in a row for it. Um, and on the other hand, um, sort of trying to clean their desks before the holidays. So things are kind of going in different directions with different clients. Um, there's still a lot of uncertainty around some of the core provisions in, in these laws. So um, a lot of decision-making amidst uncertainty and trying to understand where the market is 
um, before we've seen a whole lot of um, public uh, announcements on on how companies are interpreting some of these provisions. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where things stand right now. It's a lot of questions without great answers, um, but a lot of companies doing the best they can to, to make it work. So one of the laws you're talking about for sure is CPRA, yes? Yeah, and that's the main one. Yeah. Um, we've got the Jan 1 deadline. And I did this webinar actually with the IPP the other day where I had three guests who are implementing procedures and policies to prepare for CPRA. And the Q&A at the end, like I always say during these webinars, like, ask questions as we go along and then I'll get to them at the end. And sometimes you don't get any questions until like the last like 10 or 15 minutes, but all throughout just like really specific use case type questions. So I was like 20 minutes before the end, I was like, all right guys, like I'm actually going to stop our conversation so we can get to some of these. And the hard part was, and it was a little bit awkward actually, is that like, there there weren't answers for some of these questions. Like I felt bad for my guests because like, I'm not expected to answer this stuff. I don't know, I'm a mere scribe, but like I was lobbing these questions from the audience at my guests and it was like, ah, we don't really know yet like how they're gonna interpret that or like what the expectation is on this. Um, you feel like, but you're feeling some of that uncertainty too or experiencing some of it. Oh yeah, for sure. So I, I think some of these, um, it, it's no secret that the CPRA is not the most eloquently drafted document. There are inconsistencies. There's just some difficult to understand drafting. Um, but even sort of amidst that, trying to understand the intention behind some of these provisions is challenging. I, you know, I, I would argue the core provision of CPRA, the like main thing it aims to do is to create an opt-out for targeted advertising for what the law calls sharing for cross-context behavioral advertising. Um, but when you sort of start to parse the language of what counts as cross-context behavioral advertising, um, you can start to slice the language in lots of ways where lots of advertising practices that you intuitively think are targeted advertising you know, might not be. Um, so, you know, for example, it requires um, using data that's collected across multiple sites and services in order to target an ad at someone. You know, what about retargeting where it's just your first party data and the fact that you visited a website? Does that count? Um, unclear. What about if you do, um, you know, you deploy your first party data on a third party site. So you, you use your data to um, create a custom audience on Facebook and target someone there. Well, actually, your targeting of that ad is based on your first party data, not mm -hmm. this cross context data. So, does that count? Um, you know, what about lookalike audiences? You've sort of handed over your data in order to match and identify other customers who look, uh, other consumers who look like your consumers but aren't your consumers. Well, all of a sudden, you're not targeting that consumer that you interacted with. You're targeting other people. So does that count? Um, you know, these are really hard questions that people are grappling with. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think we're, we're not going to have clear answers um, until courts get involved. Um, I think we can read the, the draft regulations and see how the CPPA is looking at this. 
um, and they're taking a fairly broad view and um, it probably, you know, that, that seems to be the direction. Um, but even sort of discerning which practices amongst, you know, the universe of targeted advertising gets, gets mm -hmm. caught by the regulations is, is not an easy task. And so ultimately you have to make judgment calls about how finely you want to parse the language and what your level of risk tolerance is. Yeah, I think too, it's, I, I think it's interesting to think about the fact that like, I mean, I, I did this podcast the other day with Stacey Schesser, nailed her name. I struggled with it a lot, but I just got it right. Amazing. She'll be so thrilled if she ever listens to this. Um, and she was saying like how difficult it was for the California AG's office to like promulgate, promulgate the CCPA regulations and they're a well-established agency, like Department of Justice, you know, like then there's the CPPA, which is just itself standing up, you know, and like trying to figure out how to issue regulations, like how to be an enforcement body. Like, I wonder if that plays a role, like just sort of its newbie status in like trying to put this stuff out. I mean, it's a bunch of lawyers, right? On that board, I think. CCPPA? I think it is. Mostly. <clears throat> so I guess like legalese maybe isn't like as much of a struggle for them as it is for me, but. I don't know. I just wonder, like, there have to be some lessons learned from this where, like, if CPPA has to issue regulations, like, another time around, like, Alistair is like, you know what? I'm actually going to go for round three. Here's another amendment to CCPA. Like, there are probably things that the board would do differently next time based on the way things went this time. But I don't know. I mean, I guess we did have that same problem with CCPA, didn't we? Where there was a lot of, like, issues around clarity and people were pissed at the draft regs because they were, like, unclear and typos and all that. Do you remember that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's part of the origin of CPRA. I think, I mean, the issue, I mean, it's not really an issue unless you disagree, I guess, uh, with the with the CPPA's um, draft regulations is just that I think there are a number of areas where they're taking a surprising read on the bill um, as compared to kind of the, the plain meaning of the text. And I think that's what has people scratching their heads sometimes. Um, and maybe, I don't know that that's necessarily a legalese thing. I think it's just maybe having different goals and, and trying to figure out how they can shape the narrative as an agency. Um, I think Gabe is exactly right. That's what I've been saying too. We won't really know what this really all means until courts are involved, but that's only going to be on those issues that people really care about and are going to fight on. Um, so I think the agency thinks that it really can, um, try to push the, um, push best practices and, and make them fit uh, the um, the picture that they have in, in their minds of what um, privacy should look like right now, even if that's not necessarily the way CPRA was baked. And I think there's a lot of ambiguities in CPRA, as Gabe was saying. So there's different ways you could take it. Um, mm -hmm. So it just it makes it, it, all of this is an ongoing, it's always that ongoing conversation between um, between regulators and companies and just kind of the the continuing dance of figuring out what best practices should be and how to evolve based on um, how these different uh, rules are interpreted. I'm going to do like a layman's take here, which is why I like having y'all on the show, because like I do my layman's take and then you tell me why I'm wrong. But generally, of course, as you always do. Um, like in terms of risk tolerance, and I hope Stacey doesn't listen to this podcast for what I'm about to say, but like, okay, we have the Sephora case and that was like, Ooh, CCPA enforcement, like nice. Well, depends if you're an advocate, nice. If you're a company, me. but 
in terms of enforcement, you know, there's so many companies that need to comply with the law and a very small, in terms of comparison, body of regulators who are able to enforce. And, you know, like we saw with the GDPR, it was like, you know, everyone felt the press, at least I think thought like May 26, and I've said this many times, but like May 26, we were going to see like people just getting the sledgehammer brought down against them. And then it took like some years before we started seeing big names and like smaller enforcement action, you know, enforcement actions against smaller businesses too. If I were a company looking at CPRA, I wouldn't really be, now again, this is my lame mistake. I wouldn't be freaking out because maybe a few years down the line, like the CPPA starts really like bringing some cases where it's like, oh, like shit, that's the case law. I better change my practices. But in terms of like getting nailed to the cross, if I'm a company, realistically, you're probably going to be okay. Gabriel? <laughs> He's smiling. I, I don't share that view. Um, so, <laughs> I, you know, I think that the purpose of enforcement is to drive behavioral change, much more than it's about punishment. Um, so a, a small agency can pick examples that make a difference. Um, and Sephora, I think, was a good one. We we definitely saw um, concern in the market um, after the Sephora case because they looked like everybody else. And so everyone else said, uh-oh, we, we do a lot of this stuff too. Um, we need to be concerned about this. And what people are worried about, um, it, <coughs> sorry, is not just the fine. They're worried about lots of other things. So small companies... Um, are worried about their next financing round. And if in the diligence process, you're doing stuff that isn't compliant with law, that's going to harm your financing. Uh, you might be, you know, looking at selling your company uh, and same concerns arise there. Um, you might be looking at uh, trying to acquire customers. And then if you have a practice that looks like something that a regulator has said is a no-go, um, you know, your customers are going to look somewhere else where they can feel confident that they're engaging with a compliant partner. Um, so I, I think, you know, a small number of enforcement actions can have a large ripple effect. A really good example of this was the um, the DPAs in Europe who went after Google Analytics. Um, that's a really obvious thing to spot on someone's website. And so all of a sudden you're engaging in a transaction with a company that has Google Analytics. We started to see commercial parties asking, you know, why do you have Google Analytics? Why are you non-compliant with the law? Um, and often, you know, it's not that these conversations aren't happening at a very high level of sophistication. The news sort of filters down to legal people who may not even be privacy people. Or like, I read somewhere that you're not allowed to do this and you're doing it, therefore we can't use your service. It's like Google Analytics has nothing to do with the service you're buying, but um, it drives behavioral change. Um, so. Yeah. Fine. Um, Coben, interested for your take on what Gabe just said. By the way, Coben, this is like not, I just want to say this to the broader audience so that they understand. Um, this is not unusual behavior and it doesn't offend, but I do just want to say that Coben is literally like fielding questions and then shooting off texts to like, to people on his phone in between, like under the radar, like we're on video right now talking to Gabe and Coben's just like holding his phone, like not in the camera, but being like, yeah, I'll be there at six. Love you. Bye. And then just putting his phone down and being like, what was that? I was... Yeah. 
Stealing privacy questions. It was oh relevant. <laughs> we're, we're on the clock here, Angelique. Privacy You're never right. stopped. But no, I was also, I know Gabe so well. I knew exactly where he was going to go with that. And so I could follow, uh, I can follow along. And, and you know how I do. I also play back the conversation as soon as they put this is a, This down. is something else that I think I should say about COVID. <laughs> is that like being a friend, like we go, so Gabe and I went on a hike the other day. Amazing. We went for this long hike, Gabe, totally present the whole time, <laughs> never. Well, actually, that's not true. You had to take a call from a client during that hike. For like wow. Minutes, you you had to talk. started to set me up. For <laughs> I know, so that's really whatever. But Coben is like, if you go for a hike with Coben, and I have many times, he's like in the woods, like looking at leaves and telling me their like origins. And then at the same time, I'm like, so that's just why, like, I have a lot of issues with my dad. And Coben will be like in the middle of a text while you're saying this. And like three minutes later, he'll be like, yeah, I know. But yeah. And then he'll like launch into something very insightful. Like he did hear the whole thing, but it's like he hears it in playback and then responds on his time. Very frustrating. Uh, but, but also I, he's, I, he's very capable of like, of multitasking, <laughs> I will say. I deserve the, the full criticism that I am working on my, on my phone addiction. Let's just be present, as... okay? <laughs> anyway, I'm looking for reactions to what Gabriel just said. If you can even, you know, play it back at this point. <laughs> I, I, I was there for it. Uh, it's good. Um, we, uh, I think that's, uh, I basically agree with everything Gabe said, which is a, an easy position to take, of course. Um, I think uh, people, I, I would also focus, I guess, on uh, this sense of uh, consumer trust being a really important barometer um, for shaping cons- uh, companies' behavior. So I think it's not, it's both um, consumer expectations, sort of the, the Republic persona, um, and then also, yeah, uh, what other businesses think about you. That's that's kind of what this evolving world of privacy is always shaped by. And so I think regulators recognize that and in, in how they, uh, they're increasingly recognizing that and how they're targeting their enforcement actions um, to kind of, uh, yeah, shape the narrative in the way that the Google Analytics things did. I don't know that... Um, I don't know that any of that's really a bad thing. I think um, it's anything that helps uh, help kind of helps the privacy professional um, draw attention to to what they're trying to do and, and and get a company to adopt best practices is a good thing. The question is just kind of um, people end up disagreeing on what those best practices look like. So there's a lot of friction, which Gabe then ends up experiencing between companies um, that take different interpretations. Maybe they're listening to a German regulator or maybe they're ignoring the German regulator. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, that leads to friction. And we just have a lot of friction right now um, between companies in particular because of differences in interpretation. Now, I want to talk a little bit holistically about how the year has gone and what we're looking towards for next year. But first, I'd be remiss not to mention another big happening this week. Um, besides people freaking out and trying to like get ready for the holidays, but also comply with CPRA, which was that we finally had, that's my dog shaking in the background. Um, you, we finally it had sounded like applause. Applause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If only it were that easy for me to get some claps, for Christ's sakes. Um, We also had maybe a resolution, LOLs, uh, to this whole Privacy Shield uh, fiasco. I'm sure Gabe spent some time working on that. Coben, you did some red lines on that today for uh, mass audiences. 
Can you tell us a little bit about like what came down, broadly speaking, what's changing, what is purported to happen in the near future? Yeah, totally. And I'll just, we can just kind of put it into context of this continuing timeline that is ever uh, moving in front of us um, as to kind of where we are with the U.S. having adequacy uh, from the EU for data transfers. Um, yes, this was an exciting development, very expected. Um, we started to kind of expect it around this time. And so it was good that it kind of came on schedule. But it's uh, the first, the draft adequacy decision from the European Commission that is kind of uh, taking this agreement that they had, um, that, that the U.S. and the EU had, and putting it into um, the terms of an adequacy decision, which then has to go through all of the steps on the EU side uh, that can take about six months to kind of to fin- to finalize all of that. Um, so the part that I was really focused in on uh, was really that I'm always really interested in the like kind of the what does it mean for businesses side of things, um, especially because I used to work at an independent recourse mechanism for Privacy Shield, and so. We had 1,100 companies in that program that were relying on Privacy Shield before it was um, uh, killed dead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> murdered by shrubs. Before it was murdered, um, and a lot of them remained in Privacy Shield on the U.S. side because it continued to be a program that was that was uh, managed on the U.S. side, even though it did provide adequate uh, data transfer. Um, uh, protection uh, anymore. So there's still all those companies that have privacy shield in their privacy policies. Those companies now will need, will eventually need to update that to the new, the name of the new program. Um, But there was just lingering questions from those companies all this time about what, uh, if there would be any substantive data protection changes to uh, the uh, requirements that you sign up for when you're committing to Privacy Shield, uh, which will now be called the EU-US Data Privacy Framework, DPF. Um, Rolls right off the tongue. It does. DPF. I feel like DPF is kind of cool. Like It's kind of like... It's a, like a little close to DTF. But <laughs> I, I have had the same thought. It's like, you calling it the data transfer framework? Are you DPF? Yeah, I think it's good. Wrong, wrong marketing will sell itself. I think I think Department of Commerce needs to start kind of thinking through some, some DPF slogans. Yeah. yeah, I mean, saying um, at a party, and she either slaps you or says yes, you know? Like, <laughs> so I specialize in DPF. Yeah. Um, they, this, uh, so I went ahead and I took the, the one of the cool things about this draft adequacy decision, cool for me because I'm a huge nerd, but probably not cool for most people, is that it included a the first time that, we've, that we're seeing the new principles. So the privacy shield principles were the things that dictated what the requirements are, like notice and choice and all the things you have to um, make sure to follow in order to be a certified business under Privacy Shield. Um, and then also the, the kind of contours of the program that the Department of Commerce uh, runs. And also the things like the the um, review apparatus and stuff. Gabe was one of the uh, potential uh, arbiters uh, that would have seen cases if, the, if they came about. Um, so that whole thing has sort of stayed the same. But uh, there's What's interesting it was what I was looking at, and the thing that I uh, did today was just run a red line uh, comparing. Fire truck. I live in a city. It's fine. <laughs> just wanted to make sure. Okay. <laughs> um, what I was doing today was comparing um, those original privacy shield principles against the DPF principles um, to see whether there were any substantive changes for, for companies. Um, the basic takeaway is no, there's not any substantive changes for companies. The it appears that 
the vast majority of changes in this document are focused on kind of what the lessons learned from the Department of Commerce over the years, um, probably from a lot of creative lawyers like Gabe, not Gabe specifically, but lawyers creative like Gabe, helping to push some of the edges and be like, well, this says mergers and acquisitions, but it doesn't say anything about bankruptcy. If we're in bankruptcy, what are we supposed to do? Um, this has kind of helped to clarify a lot of those scenarios. And it's kind of a lot of details about the administration of Privacy Shield that pretty much matches what they've already been doing, but now it's written down a little bit more clearly. Um, yeah, nothing really big in terms of uh, substantive takeaways, except that companies will need, if they're in Privacy Shield, they'll just need to update to the new name, and they'll need to do that within three months once we're once it's a real thing, once it's finalized. So is, um, was Privacy Shield, like, are we pivoting now from using just a framework like Privacy Shield to using the term adequacy? Or was that still true? Yeah. So, so no, it's different now. No, it's the same. It, oh. It's the same sort of instrument. Yeah. So Privacy Shield, Privacy Shield, is an, it depends on how you think about it. This, these frameworks are negotiated between the two countries, but adequacy is the EU's recognition of the framework okay. as a valid transfer mechanism. Because I think of adequacy as like, when we hear about these announcements, like, oh, you know, South Korea has mm -hmm. been declared adequate, yeah. whereas we would talk about the privacy shield as like, well, it's not adequate, but we have privacy shield, which you can right. certify to. Like, I think of those exactly. as different. They they are. This it's they're All of these that the U.S. ends up getting are basically limited adequacy decisions. Okay. It's not oh, you're adequate no matter what, it's you're adequate if for, for those companies that self-certify and follow and kind of put all their promises and their privacy policies, because that's the instrument that makes them enforceable by the Federal Trade Commission as a deceptive trade practice, right? Because you've made that explicit promise publicly to follow those practices, and then that becomes enforceable in the U.S. Otherwise, because we don't have a comprehensive consumer privacy bill law, um, it would... Uh, we we don't get the the kind of overall adequacy that like South Korea could can can provide. Okay, so I would add I would add one more business impact to Coven's excellent summary, um, which is that you know going back to the Schrems decision, it dealt with um, standard contractual clauses, and it said the SECs were largely okay, um, like the commercial commitments were were sort of fine. But the real issue was that there was um, the potential for unlawful access by government authorities in the U.S. because the U.S. didn't have an adequate framework to protect against um, national security and law enforcement access. And that's where we have the executive order from last month, which tried to plug some of those gaps. Maybe it was two months ago. Time flies in this new world. Um, I think it was October, weirdly. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway. <laughs> Um, and this draft adequacy decision is important because it's um, it's the European Commission setting out clearly that it thinks the executive order plugs the gap. And that mm -hmm. matters not just if you're planning to rely on um, the DPF, um, but it also matters for the many more companies that use standard contractual clauses um, because under Schrems, you have to do this transfer impact assessment when you rely on standard, standard contractual clauses, where you look at the laws of the third country and make sure that there isn't unwarranted government access that's inconsistent with EU principles. Here, the European Commission is saying, actually, we think the U.S. protections are sufficient. 
So even if you rely on standard contractual clauses, you can um, have comfort that U.S. laws aren't going to override those. And my hot take is that even though this is a draft adequacy decision and it has no binding effect yet, it already matters um, for those transfers. If you're you know, negotiating a relationship where data can be transferred from Europe to the U.S. today, the day after this draft adequacy decision, you can look at that report by uh, at that analysis by the European Commission and say, okay, look, here's a credible body that already, you know, views this as adequate. Um, and, and that I think should give businesses a lot more comfort to transfer data to the US. But I don't understand because I thought the qualms were a national security access, which to my knowledge, we haven't changed mm -hmm. what that what our intelligence agencies can do and when they can access data and b the um, independent nature or unindependent nature to use a non-term of this court that would resolve disputes or look at alleged non-compliance like those things didn't change so why has the ec said oh you plugged the gaps so i think the the argument is that the executive order did address these issues yeah. um you know whether they have fully addressed them i think will ultimately see ch more challenges and this could be resolved in court but what the executive order said is that for signals intelligence purposes, um, there need to be proportionality and necessity limitations on U.S. government access. And those were drafted to align to the standards under um, the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. This so new? Because the, the, I, thought, I thought the argument Biden's there was... executive order last month. Mm -hmm. But I thought, um, the, I thought that, sorry, Gabe, but I want to, before we get too far, I want to just I just want to ask about this. My understanding was that the problem there was that the EU's version of proportionality and the U.S. version of proportionality are different, and that in this draft, in the EU, in the executive order, they were using sort of what Americans would consider proportionate. I think that's certainly an argument that some people have made. Maybe that's just what Trump said. Right. You, you sound very <laughs> much like Trump right now. Because well, I think he's so, I love listening to him. He's so mad and excited. So, like, I listen to all his pushback. And Trump's he has... wins every time. So whenever he says this shit, I'm like, well, we can look forward to hearing this when this, like, new agreement gets taken down. He's a very compelling speaker, yes. Uh, but both uh, both parties, both on the EU side and the U.S. side, th this is sort of a, a negotiated instrument, and now it's being implemented in, on, on both sides. And so, so at least from the European Commission's perspective, this round, I mean, they're implementing that round. Schrems is going to make those arguments, and probably he'll make them in court. Right. But for now, we're going to see the implementation of what both sides believe is a, a good faith effort to address the court's concerns. Yeah, but both sides believed that Safe Harbor and Privacy Shield were good faith efforts that made sense and plugged gaps. Right. And then yeah, Trump's taking this down. I, this I think it's got... safe to say this isn't the end of the story. And, you know, we'll have more of these conversations about data transfers. But I do think in sort of the immediate term mm -hmm. for the foreseeable future, we have, I mean, not for the foreseeable future, for the next few months, maybe years, we have some comfort that the European Commission has said this regime works. And until it gets struck down again, if it does, uh, we, we can have reassurance that the transfers are okay. Yeah, and I think Gabe's point, too, is that this is... Um 
this is a meaningful impact right now for companies because transfer impact assessments are done sort of in the moment. And I'm kind of blessed by the fact that I've never had to do a transfer impact assessment. So, so there's, so there's take what I say with a caveat, but I sort of think of it as shoots and ladders where like, I feel like what this has done now is provided us with a bit of a, a shoot, <laughs> a slide uh, to avoid a lot of the extra analysis that you would otherwise have to do about what the U.S. government is doing and kind of what the what the government access requirements are because the European Commission has this draft. You can put an asterisk next to it because it's draft. Well, I'm asterisking. I, and also because of critiques, I guess. But it gives companies a lot more uh, evidence to point to in terms of describing what the uh, current state of play is well, for this listen, country because they're also doing TIAs for every country, right? And so this is just... Here's my, here's my hot take before we move on from this is lay in your hammocks now because someone's about to show up with a pair of scissors, <laughs> snip those hammocks right down. But transfer away for now, people. Transfer away. Uh, anyway. That was, that's terrifying. If you could... <laughs> see the way Angelique was staring at the camera while she said that. <laughs> okay. I can't take much more of your time because you both have things to do and you're getting paid to do them. But, uh, and I'm not paying you at all. Not even in wine in Gabe's case. Poor guy. But um, when you look back at this year, like what, what do you, what, what did any needles move? Like, it's hard to think back about stuff that happened in like the early part of the year. Cause that seems like centuries ago, I guess. But I mean, like for me, I feel like I got fooled. I got taken for a ride on this whole federal privacy law thing. And like, I'm not even going to say, like, I, I will never, ever ask the question again. Is this the year? I, will, I don't even <laughs> want to talk about like if that's in our future. Like I'm over it. I partly blame Cam Terry. I love you so much, but I do partly blame you. And to be honest, I also blame uh, Gabe's boss, Omer Tene, uh, Coben's former boss. For getting me on board, you know, he he was also very optimistic. And we did a whole webinar once where he told me that, like, hey, even if this doesn't go, this is going to be the bones. This is the framework for the future privacy law. And now nothing. But that that part hasn't been reviewed, right? I think that that's one of my takeaways looking back at the year. I think ADPPA really has changed the narrative of what a comprehensive bill is going to look like, um, even for next term. I, mean, I don't know. Someone said online the other day that th- that that none none of this is going to carry over. They're going to have to start from scratch. And I read and I believe anything I read from anyone. <laughs> So, I mean, even if they scrap it and start over, I think it is, which I don't think will happen, but uh, I, I think that this has changed some of the expectations of what uh, is going to be kind of, what are the table setting? What are the table stakes? Is that what you call it? Yeah. What do you, what do you set the table with when you're talking about stakes? <laughs> stakes. <laughs> as many stakes as you can get your hands on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, when you are, uh, drafting a, a comprehensive consumer privacy bill because, um, I mean, so things like, uh, like the fact that there's civil rights protections in this bill, I think uh, both sides, if there are sides, both uh, different stakeholders are going to recognize that that's sort of uh, part and parcel of what these kinds of bills look like nowadays, um, even if maybe we start drafting from scratch. Uh, but I don't think, I think in reality, it'll be tweaks to ADPPA that are introduced next year too. I don't even want to talk about it. Gabe, what was the year? What did anything? You just celebrated a year at Goodwin. Proctor, congrats. Yeah. What did the year? I know. I mean, you've been so busy. Um, both of you have. And uh, it's probably hard to parse like what, you know, what even happened when. But are you able to step back and say broadly, like, 
did this year move the needle for privacy at all? So here's what I'll say. I was looking back at the year and trying to think of what was I thinking about? What did I think would be the big things this year? Um, and now sitting a year later, how do they look? And I guess I, I would put things in two buckets. There are certain things that sort of flopped and then other things that um, look like they're actually gaining momentum. So in my flop bucket, um, number one right at the top is crypto. Web3, I don't think it's dead. I think there's still a lot of energy behind it. You know, there's still lots of crypto stuff happening, but I think it's been a humbling experience for a lot of people in that industry and it's in a period of regrouping. So, you know, learning privacy and blockchain, I think is probably not the priority right now. Mm. Thank um, God. Let's see in a, a, a couple of years. Um, the other one, um, this one might be more controversial. I think the relationship between antitrust or competition and privacy is something we're hearing less of than we were a year ago. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know, that one felt like a big issue a year ago. Now, uh, you know, I think we've seen some of the dominance of, of big tech being challenged mm -hmm. um, because of what starts like TikTok, because of um, business headwinds and layoffs. Uh, I think the narrative has changed. Um, now, I could be completely wrong and there, you know, there may be stuff happening at the FTC and at state attorneys general that, that we'll see next year. But some of the wind has come out of that sale, I think. Wait, can I poke at that? And I want you to finish, but isn't that interesting? Because I think you're right. I wouldn't have thought of that until you said it, but there was a lot happening when I was still at the IPP reporting from Congress on, I remember sitting in on many a hearing, I'm talking about like the way that we were going to use antitrust to address privacy concerns at companies like Amazon, et cetera. But then like, why has that died down if Khan came in touting antitrust as like her big priority? Well, so I think there's still a lot of momentum behind the antitrust movement and the, the FTC is doing lots of stuff there, but I think privacy has been sort of parsed out of it to some degree, and um, in part because um, there's been a lot of in, a lot of sophisticated thought looking at the relationship and noting that there's actually some tensions between privacy and antitrust. Um, you know, privacy can um, lock down data in ways that reduce competition, um, and so I I think my sense is that the sort of zeitgeist is moving towards viewing privacy as a regulatory issue and less of a competition concern. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I'm bad at predictions. Okay, what else you got on your list? So actually, I put EU-US transfers as declining. I think, um, you know, start of the year, we had these um, Google Analytics decisions. Everyone was talking about enforcement of EU-US data transfers. Uh, seems to me that people are kind of moving on. The data is still flowing to the U.S. And the news from yesterday, I think, is the latest signal that for the next year, data is going to be able to flow. Um, we're not going to, you know, create a wall across the Atlantic. Um, that was kind of it for my my um, waning list. I can share what I think is sort of on the, the growing or holding steady list. I want that, but hold on. Colvin. <clears throat> what about you? Are you a are you a year at IPP or longer? Not even a year. Yeah, no? this is a, I'm at I just finished ten months, so I'll be this. I'm yeah, moving so towards eleven jobs months. At the same time about. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh yeah. Um, tell me what what was your year like in terms of uh, broad issues or? Well, I like that we I like this. I like that we're now thinking of this as sort of uh, 
ticker tape, the, up, the ups and downs of, of different issues, I guess. Uh, so what's, what, what, what's, uh, what's on the rise? What's on the fall? Um, so starting with what is falling, I really like Gabe's point about competition. I, I think, um, there are a lot of factors that are playing into that. It will be interesting to see if regulators kind of have been pursuing this idea of data as a um, as something that can uh, lead to market dominance um, of personal data, something that can do that, um, and that they just haven't brought those cases yet. But um, I think one thing, I mean, so there's this idea in economics, uh, this, this guy named Schumpeter uh, stands for this idea that um, there's always going to be the next, the next thing that comes to, to take, to take over with whatever the dominant player is that the basically it's a free market idea that, that the market kind of, uh, antitrust isn't so much needed uh, as a regulatory tool because, um, the market will, will shape itself that the next big innovation will come and take down those players. And so I think that's maybe we are seeing a bit of that cycle in terms of the headwinds that, that the big tech companies are facing as they try to struggle with what, what is what does what do people want to stare on the, their phone screens at right now, um, and kind of how does that all shape in terms of um, advertising and personal data, um, which are kind of the big moving pieces there. Um, so yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't really thought that through yet, but that's an interesting um, uh, theme. I don't know what else is on the downfall. Um, I think one thing I would point to on the rise is. Uh, children's uh children and teen issues i don't think at the beginning of the year i expected to be spending so much of my time thinking about um children and teens i guess i i guess i was actually already by the beginning of the year but i didn't expect it to become a regulatory <laughs> matter already um and so i think uh, california's age-appropriate design code really um threw a lot of uh gas on that fire um but still no one's talking about it but still no one's talking about it, which is why I'm I talking keep on about freaking it. Out. Because I want more people to talk about it because it is a big deal. It's a big deal. And no one everyone's <laughs> freaking out about CPR and no one's freaking out about this new like life. I feel like it's a game changer of a law. And everyone's like, well, the UK code. And I'm like, well, that's not a law. Like you can do that or you can't. Like you get to yeah. decide. I mean, I think in theory the UK code is enforceable, but um yeah, the the, the California code um comes with uh fines attached to it, specific statutory fines. Um it empowers the agency to, to create more rules. It um really is wide ranging and applies to a lot of companies that I don't think would expect to be thinking about teens and kids. And so I find it a big game changer and I think it's already going to be shaping the narrative and we're already looking at federal uh, proposals as well. COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act, just today has a new version of the of the uh, bill text. Um, I, I, it's still probably not going anywhere, uh, but it, I think everybody's kind of wrapping, putting a bow on what they've been working on this year and that includes uh, those, those drafts. Um, and uh, yeah, I, that's a really been a fascinating trend for me. Um, Ugh, kids. So annoying. Gabe, what else you got for coming so up this annoying. year? The children. Well, kids was on my rising list. Um, the other big one, uh, I would say, is health. Um, so thrown mm. into the spotlight by Dobbs. Um, yeah. Lots of interest in sort of reproductive health privacy. Um, there are still lots of ripple effects around that issue. And um, companies, you know, genuine concern about how to address it properly. And then layer on top of it a set of laws that come into place next year um, that have opt-in requirements for sensitive data, including health, um, which is changing some practices. 
Um, and I think, you know, for, for years in the U.S., we've sort of thought um, health is covered, we've got HIPAA. And I think, you know, following uh, the discussion around uh, COVID vaccines, everyone is now aware of the limitations of, of HIPAA and um, the implications for health privacy. I think people are going to be looking at that space a lot more. Um, the other one on my list, so um, I didn't put ADPPA on my list, but I do think there's a carryover from it um, yeah. and from the FTC rulemaking, which is, um, and this is an old one, but still on the rise, um, civil rights, algorithmic discrimination, AI, you know, how do these fit with privacy? How do we address these concerns? Um, I think we're going to be talking about that. The, the CPPA still needs to issue its rulemaking on the automated decision-making provisions of um, CPRA. So, you know, watch out for that, and that will be an important marker. Um, and, and I think it fits with another theme I would raise, which is that um, I think we're starting to hear people talk about privacy risks and harms much more as collective risks and harms than as sort of individual ones. Um, and we see that in the legislation in Europe dealing with data and not just personal data. And I think we see it in these discussions around how to regulate AI. So I think that's going to continue to grow too. Concerns about, well, how do we handle data that um, may not be personal or may not create risks for individuals, but do sort of have broader um, public policy or, or social concerns that we want to address. Um, and even if it's not traditional privacy, I think privacy people will be the ones thinking through these issues. Okay, I have to let you go back to your jobs. Do you have something to say? No, I, okay. I mean, Gabe and I, that, he, Gabe and I uh, sing from the same handbook on those things. So I think he, he, he couldn't have said it. Uh, I couldn't have said it any better than, than Gabe. So I'll, I'll, I'll defer to him on all of those issues. That would definitely be on the top of my rising list as well if I had been uh, so prepared as Gabe for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I texted you guys five minutes before we started saying, here are some questions I'd like you to think about for this podcast. But he so. had a rising and falling list, which I think well, is a really good. He's, he's so. Angelique, like, what is your favorite privacy story of the year? Ooh. I mean, I honestly, I think it's the children's code stuff because I got in a bunch of trouble for reporting on the the shittiness of uh, the California bill by interviewing Eric Goldman, which was, uh, it's the first backlash I've ever experienced as a, a working uh, journalist or privacy professional, whatever you want to call me. And uh, I didn't see it coming. But it was also nice for me because people like came at me and were like, they wanted to teach. They were like, listen, I think you missed the mark on this. Like, here, here are the good points about this bill. You know, they love kids and stuff or whatever. Um, that was a big one I didn't really see coming. It came, it came out of nowhere. It passed unanimously. I didn't expect it. And I thought that was kind of exciting. As I mentioned, I'm still mad at the, you know, I'm not mad at the ADPPA. I'm mad at its uh, just cheerleaders. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I'm mad at its cheerleaders for getting me excited and uh, for finally buying in and telling people that I was finally saying maybe this is the year after a decade of saying, stop saying that, guys. It's never going to happen. I think that was, yeah. And obviously Dobbs was, like, life-changing. You yeah, know, sitting sure. in a Zoom room with my colleagues on the West Coast, like literally crying about the way our lives had all just changed and how alone we felt and disregarded by our own government. And uh, 
Supreme Court was a life-changing experience for sure. You know, all the stuff that you said, basically, <laughs> is what I just did. I just took your list and said me too. Uh, I want to let you guys get back to your lives, but Gabriel, I wish you well while you drive to Montreal. Same um, to you for your drive. Are you going to speak French there? Yeah. Well, how do you say, I hope you have a Merry Christmas and I love you so much. Say it to me. I'm just going to say Joyeux Noël. Oh. Mm. He doesn't love me. I didn't do the love part, but it's okay. That's all right. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Coven and I are going on a cruise. Uh, so we will be sure to text you all sorts of racy photos uh, of ourselves doing like beer chugging contests or something, whatever they do on cruises. Who knows? It's an, uh, we're, it's, we're open for whatever adventures come to us. Yeah, exactly. I'm hoping I to. I don't just... man. Bring a plunger. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, I'm literally ending it there. <laughs>